Welcome to episode 154 of Control the Controllables. And today is International Women's Day. And what better way to celebrate than having one of the most recognisable female faces and voices in tennis on our show today? I look at tapes and I'm thinking, okay, I should have done this or you know do that because it's the same as on the tennis court sometimes you play a match and you think your forehand was outstanding but it was actually not and uh it's the same thing when you when you host a show and you go like oh that was really good or that was really bad and then it it just comes across completely different and if you haven't guessed it that is barbara shett eagle she's a former top 10 singles and doubles wta player and is famous the last 16, 17 years on the show on Eurosport, game set and mats with Mats Verlander, where we see her talking, analysing the day's tennis at all of the Grand Slams and what a brilliant job that she has done. Barbara was supposed to be our guest last week, but those of you that are listening regularly to the podcast will know that we felt it was more fitting when we had the opportunity to speak to Sergei Starkovsky. Sergei is a former Ukrainian tennis player who is just a devastating story, has so many stories out there right now. Has left his wife and three kids to go and enlist in the Army Reserves out in Ukraine. An incredible man, brave to the core. And if anybody hasn't listened to that episode, I strongly recommend you episode 153 to take 15, 20 minutes in your day to really connect to what is truly going on out in Ukraine right now. So there isn't a mention of that throughout the podcast because we did we did record this episode a couple of weeks ago now. But for any of you that do want to hear Barbara, she did interview Elena Svitolina, which you'll find on Eurosport, and we'll we'll put the link in the show notes. But as it's International Women's Day, it's also an opportunity to shout out all of you brilliant women out there, and a message that I'd like to give that we all continue to fight the great fight of equality, of making a safer, a kinder world for all of our kids, our sisters, our wives, cousins, aunties, and mums that are out there. And this episode is dedicated to all you amazing, strong, independent women out there. Keep leading the way. And I'm going to hand you over to Barbara Shett. So Barbara Shett Eagle, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Hi, I'm really well. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Looking forward to this chat. Well, it's, it's lovely to have you, and especially at a time when I feel I've watched you a lot over the last, <laughs> or this time of year, you know, I think we all, we all wake up, turn on the TVs in Europe, and, and there you are talking so well about, about Australia. So have you recovered from that crazy few weeks? Ooh. Because... It's a difficult time, I would imagine. Lots of hours. Um, yeah, it was not, and it was not only the the Australian Open. I uh, worked a couple of tournaments before. I was in Adelaide and in Sydney as well. So it was a full on month uh, in um, in Australia for for work. But uh, yeah, um, you know, I mean, it's uh, a privilege uh, for me to be um, at every Grand Slam, pretty much, and especially this year. It was unbelievable when Ash Barty won, and then uh, Rafa Nadal won his twenty first. Uh, it was just. Uh, a real pleasure to be on site but I have to say 
uh, talking about recovery, I think uh, usually when I finish a Grand Slam, I'm as tired as uh, the finalists. So I'm really like the Monday after I completely collapse. I wake up and I don't know who I am, uh, what my name is, where I am, because I'm that tired. So it does take me a few days, like three, four days of uh, a lot of sleeping, a lot of good eating, little talking um, to just get back to normal. It's it's pretty intense, the, the hours I, I work. And sometimes people, I think, look at me and they go like, oh, this all looks so fun and happy. And it is fun, don't get me wrong, but the hours are very long. Like they're 14, 15 hour days yeah. every day for two weeks. And um, it's it's pretty tiring. And I would imagine, and obviously we'll get to your tennis playing career a, a little bit later, but tennis players have to prepare themselves yeah, for, yeah. For, for events obviously physically mentally you know all of all of those type of things now is that something I guess Christmas period comes around I guess you've got to be a little bit careful Christmas and New Year to be partying <laughs> too much and and losing the voice and and not being in the right headspace is that something you have to prepare for um, well, to be honest, I live a pretty, um, pretty healthy uh, lifestyle. So yeah. I uh, even Christmas time, which I actually always spent back in Austria, uh, I'm pretty active. So I do all the winter sports, skiing and everything. And this year we couldn't have a lot of gatherings or big gatherings um, as well. So there were no Christmas parties. They were all um, cancelled uh, as well. So uh, there was no tem tem uh, temptation as well for me. But uh, yeah, I do, I do prepare. I want to, you know physically feel good before a yeah. grand slam as well because i know it's long hours and um, early starts late finishes and, and stuff like that so um i i still look after my exercise regime and and routine which is very important i pretty much eat healthy of course i have a, a glass of wine uh, here and there um but um yeah i want to be fresh uh, especially uh, not only physically but mentally and i do prepare um also you know like um you know during the tournament i don't uh, sometimes remember all the results what happened a few years ago and and here and there so i i do a bit of research as well just to be on top of my game because i feel like that people um, expect that from me so it's not just uh, hopping in front of jumping in front of the camera and just uh, you know talking which I do do a lot as well but um, you know I want to I want to especially be good with my with my expertise so um, I always do research because <laughs> uh, it's, it's almost it's quite an unforgiving job in lots of ways when I mean, we can talk on this podcast I can mess up and I can edit it out. No problem. Yeah. You know, things can get edited out. If you're good, almost people don't realize that you're there because it's in lots of ways you do it, you're doing your job and that's what all people are expecting. If you, if you do mess up or if you don't quite have the right fact, people are ready to jump onto you, you know, so it's got to be quite, yeah. it's got to be quite a bit of pressure, I would imagine. I don't see it as pressure, really. I just try to be prepared, as well prepared as possible. And, uh, you know, people, I make mistakes some, sometimes. Uh, I mean, not fatal mistakes, but uh, every now and then, you know, I get little a little statistic maybe wrong or, um, but that's, uh, you know, that's live TV. And I think that's why it's so fun um, as well, because it's very spontaneous things and, um, and then I do have somebody in my ear uh, most of the time who tells me, maybe something wrong. Sometimes it happened as well in the yeah. past and the statistic was wrong and I was the one who delivered it and I was the one who copped <laughs> it then. Um, but, you know, um, 
as long as it's not a, a major thing, people are pretty forgiving. I, I mean, I do get uh, a few messages here and there. Why did you say this? Why did you say that? Uh, just today, I got a message from uh, my agent who sent through an email from, from, from someone because I asked Iga Swantek, uh, for example, at the Australian Open, if she has finished her book, you know, because she loves reading and she was reading Gone with the Wind. And now, um, yeah, people uh, or that particular person said if I, I was a racist. So <laughs> it's really interesting. So as a lot of, uh, a lot of times uh, you can't do it wrong or, or you can't make it wrong or can't make it right for, for everyone. And yeah. there will always be somebody out there who doesn't like you, you know, you can't be liked by everyone, but that's fine. That's fine. I just, uh, you know, I just try my best and, um, and uh, enjoy what I do. And um, yeah, and that's all I can do pretty much. Well, thank you for your brilliant work. You know, the tennis community <laughs> is a lot better for, for the work you do. And Thanks. Australia, you mentioned Australia, Australian Open. Yep. It, it captured not just tennis fans. It captured almost the world before the event. And then luckily we got out, we got the focus back onto the tennis. The tennis was incredible. What are your reflections now that you've had a couple of weeks after the events of the Australian summer? What are your big reflections of the Australian Open? Yeah, of course, it was very turbulent uh, before the Australian Open. We all know uh, the case, uh, Novak Djokovic, can he enter Australia? Can he not enter Australia? It was uh, going on for quite some time. I think it was almost a couple of weeks. And um, uh, it was unfortunately, a lot, of, a lot of it was very, very negative. And the whole world looked at uh, the sport of tennis and particularly that case, you know, in a, in a quite critical and negative way. And I didn't... I didn't like that too much uh, because tennis, you know, a sport is uh, something that brings people together pretty much. And, um, and it was very, the people were very divided what was going on there. And I didn't uh, really enjoy that. But I have to say from the first point onwards, uh, you know, the main draw was played at the Australian Open. People didn't really talk about um, that incident much anymore. And they focused on the tennis and uh, and uh, I mean, how good was the tennis? We had Ash Barty win um, the Australian Open after such a long time and Aussie could lift up the trophy again. And then the whole Rafa Nadal story uh, again and how dramatic was that finally? It couldn't have been better. Um, it was certainly um, entertaining and it was important as well, I think, for tennis and for, for the Australian Open to, to finish the tournament on a high. Oh, absolutely. I, I think... Firstly, I don't think any of us saw Nadal coming. I know we no. are, are, on on the podcast we do a, a review, a preview, and a review show. And I had Xavier Melis on. I had um, Kieran Vorster. There was there was a, the, Freddie Nielsen. None of us even mentioned Rafa. It was almost like oh, we should mention Rafa because Rafa is Rafael Nadal. But really, when people were making their predictions, he wasn't someone that was coming in. Whereas on the other hand, I think we all picked Ash Barty in lots of ways. You know, it felt like it was, felt like it was her time. Yeah. And, and, and watching her, and I know it's someone who you, you know very well, it's, it seemed as if, you, you know, when you turn up to a junior tournament and you have 
just a top seed who is maybe a year or two older than everybody else and just has that maturity over over the rest of the field. It really did feel that with Ash. So and 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 obviously the pressure she would have had in Australia, there's no way it was like that. So so I guess my question is now, and for someone who's so close to to the ground on tennis, does she now start to clean up a little bit in these grand slams? Or or was that uh a bit of a one-off that she was seemed to be so far ahead of everybody else. Well, not necessarily. I mean, she felt it felt like when you watched her play in every match, and I watched every single match, she was at ease, you know, with herself. He has she had this lightness about uh, the way she presented herself on the court. And we all know, tennis-wise, uh, she has the game, uh, the game which the girls these days don't like at all. With that backhand slice, with that uh, big forehand, she has a, an unbelievable serve. But uh, yeah, it was amazing how she dealt with the whole pressure, and um, she's been working for. Uh, quite some time now with uh, a, a mental coach with um, um, with with someone intensely and he helped her a lot and it's not necessarily about uh, uh, tennis itself it's more about um, how she is or how she develops uh, as a person and she mentions that Ash mentions that so many times after her matches that all she wants to do is try her best and you know be, be the best version of herself every single day and that's pretty amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, if she continues to, to love tennis and if she continues to be into the sport, then I think she can win many more uh, Grand Slams. She's definitely the best player out there on the tour, on the women's tour at the moment. And um, yeah, I'm sure she has her eye on uh, the US Open, for example. She hasn't won the US Open uh, yet. Another title in Wimbledon would be amazing. And um, she's the most consistent player uh, at the moment on, on the WTA Tour as well. And um, yeah, she seems like uh, she has the right, uh, the right team around her. Whenever she talks about um, her success, she always refers not to an I. She says we as a team and um, you can see how close she is with everyone and uh, how every single person in her team has such an importance to her so um, she's she's doing it right the right way at the moment and I'm, I'm here in Australia now and it's really interesting you don't really she just won the Australian Open you know um, after so many years for the first time and you don't really hear anything uh, from her um, as well she keeps such low key she just wants to be home she wants to be with uh, her fiance she wants to be with the dogs and her niece and uh, um, it's really really interesting to to have such a different world number one it is and so so well put Barbara and, and I think that the one point before because I want to get into your tennis story in a minute but the, the one point I want to pick up on because I'm a, I'm a big believer of this. And we've had Iga Sviantec train at the academy who travels with her sports psychologist. And I, and I just think people often in the tennis world and certainly coaches, players, parents can almost think you either have it or you don't mentally. Whereas it is a skill, just like developing a forehand, a backhand, a, a slice, a serve. And to hear that Ash Bartley, the world number one, is still having this growth mindset of saying, right, I need to work and continue working at this side of my game. And you hear it. I love interviews with players because I think you, you pick so much up from their mindset. And Ash, like you say, yeah. always uses we. She, you know, talking about she just wants to enjoy and give her best and enjoy the Australian summer. You know, and the byproduct of that is the ability to perform. If I move that 
question into your tennis, a world number seven, you know, an incredibly high level tennis player. Was that an area of your game that you worked at or, or back in back in our day? I won't throw you under the bus with the age. I'll say back in our day, it was it wasn't looked at in, in quite the same way, maybe. Um, I think nowadays people or players or just in general, the population, you know, is a lot more open about mental health uh, and about issues maybe on the on the court, you know, in any sport. And I think anybody, everybody can work on something. I mean, you hit, uh, you know, you practice every day, your forehand, your backhand. But what about the mental aspect? And uh, once again, I don't think it's, uh, it's just necessary or only necessary in tennis, in sport. It's necessary as a human being because everybody is carrying a, a certain backpack, you know, uh, everybody can um, view things uh, differently or look at yourself in a different way, reflect. And I think uh, um, we should all do that a little bit more. Coming back to my um, career, I have worked with a sports psychologist, a psychologist for a couple of years, and he's helped me a lot. Uh, I had my issues on the court and I was getting it was very hard for me to accept the uh, errors and mistakes and um, I would uh, have a tendency to get very negative and down on myself so he has worked um, or he's he's helped me a lot you know to just uh, change my way of thinking how to deal with negative thoughts and um, uh, and that was the best time in my career I had uh, my breakthrough then I was I was top 10 and um, I worked every single day and in, in that department pretty much and um uh, I think, um, I think once again, I think every player should have a good look at themselves and, um, and uh, every player has certain doubts, uh, certain um, thoughts coming out, especially in the game of tennis, which can last a very long time, you know, between, I don't know, two hours and five hours, you have a lot of uh, um, emotions coming up and uh, it's a matter of how you deal with those emotions. You know, if you, when you deal with pressure, how you deal with uh, anxiety, uh, decision-making and all these things. So uh, I think, um, yeah, I think it's a, a really important, um, important part of, of tennis, which should not be underestimated. And I love it that people are so much more open about it now. Absolutely. And, and in terms of, in terms of our childhood and our start in, in the sport of tennis, how much do you think our experiences at those ages impact how we are once we're older and we're, we're on the court as well? Very much so. I think it uh, really impacts you. The, the first coach you've had, the way you started uh, to play tennis, the way uh, your parents uh, have handled uh, success and, uh, you know, and, and uh, uh, sometimes when you would lose matches. Uh, I think, um, as we all know, when you're a little child, you know, um, the things you, you remember, everything people say and, oh. and what your parents tell you. And um, that can be a very good thing, but that can also be a problem down the track because it's very hard to get out of those patterns. I, for example, always thought that I had to practice five, six hours a day. I had yeah. to, had to, had to. And when I didn't practice that amount, I thought I'm not prepared enough, you know? So uh, it was really hard to get that out of my brain <laughs> pretty much that uh, sometimes less is more. And um, yeah, I mean, that's just a, an example, for, exa for example, you know, what, what the players are dealing with and um, definitely um, the path, not the path is set, but uh, whatever, whoever, you know, is your mentor uh, when you grow up or your coach or um, 
is uh, yeah, that's pretty much in your head, I think. Yeah, no, we have the norms. The norms are set very early, aren't they? In terms yeah, of yeah. in terms of what's expected, and it's it's really hard to break through. I I I actually not so much on a tennis thing, but. I went back. I went back home to to see my parents this weekend, and, and unfortunately, my mum was diagnosed with Alzheimer's about three, four years ago. Pandemic has stopped us being able to go back too much from Spain back to the UK, and and when I was there, and every time I'm there, as much as I love being home, everyone treats me like the role I played when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so as a kid, I was a bit clumsy. I got in a little bit of trouble. And and then as I've developed, I, I own my own tennis academy in Spain and I've got 18 staff members and, you know, people that I employ. And, you know, I've got quite a lot of responsibility. Yet yeah. when I go back into that environment with my cousins and my uncles, it's almost like I'm young Dan who <laughs> still messes up and, and does all of those things. It is quite hard to lose those labels you know, and, and those norms that you have at that age. So, so what was your young tennis experience? Cause I know you were, you were very good early, you know, looking back, you know, I think you broke top hundred around about 18 years old, were playing mm -hmm. WTA tournaments at almost 15, 16, but your earlier, earlier tennis experiences, do you have fond memories? Do you look back and go, that was, that was a really challenging time. How was that for you? No, it was uh, mainly fun. I mean, the way, uh, our generation started to play tennis is probably different than this generation. So my parents socially played tennis and uh, my brother and I, we were dragged to the tennis court each weekend. And uh, not that they would play a lot of tennis without us. Uh, no, we had to entertain ourselves. So we would just hang out with other kids and play hide and seek. And then uh, just started to play tennis against the tennis wall. And I found that fascinating. Um, and my parents, for example, they because my brother is seven years older, they tried to teach him a little bit. And I was just hanging out and just playing against this wall. And I basically um, learned uh, the basics or just the, the, the hand-eye coordination, getting contact uh, alone um, with that um, tennis wall. And um, I just loved, I just loved it. You know, I just loved the sport. And uh, from the age of six onwards, I was already in the uh, state federation in, in, in Tyrol. And I practiced that a couple of times a week. So um, I basically based, went to, to school and I played tennis and I did all the other sports. My family is a very, was always very athletic. So we would go skiing, we would go hiking, everything outdoors, cross country skiing and athletics and, and, and all that stuff. So um, that's all that mattered to me. I, I just wanted to be physically active and uh, I have very good memories um, from, from my childhood there. And the, the pressure maybe came a little bit later, you know, when you have to perform. And the first time I felt really pressured was uh, probably when I was around um, six, 17 or 18, um, just before I broke into the top 100 because uh, the Austrian Tennis Federation, because um, I, I moved to Vienna when I was 14 to, to train in the okay. Institute of Sport there, which was very young. And then at the age of 18, or I think I might have been already top 100, they said, okay, we can't help you financially anymore now. Um, you have to you know, do it yourself pretty much. And that's when I kind of panicked. I was like, okay, 
um, you know, those days the price money was a bit different than this year, this nowadays. And also now, if you're top hundred, um, you know how, how expensive it is to travel on the tour um, with the coach, you know, the whole year, because as a tennis player, you have to have to pay everything yourself. So that really stressed me out. And um, I um, at one point was thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to be able to perform when I have this pressure, you know, on my shoulders? But uh, I, um, I dealt with it uh, somehow. It all turned out to be all right. But um, I also turned pro when I was 16. So I stopped school because I was traveling so much already. And um, I decided together with my parents um, that I'm going to go this path. And if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to school, finish school, and then I can go to university and study. And um, all that together um, was a, a tricky time. I think uh, 17, 18 uh, years of age where uh, the, the pressure was quite overwhelming. Um, but then, you know, here I am, you know, talking to you, I was top 10, I have a great job and, and everything's all right. Um, and um, uh, it just made me the person who I am now, pretty much that the, the whole tennis tour. Doesn't it just show though, because everyone and me doing this podcast has been fantastic because I've spoken to so many different people that have got so many different lenses of the sport, but also so many different people that have gone on and won Grand Slams or I mean top 10 in the world. Because when we take tennis as an industry on the whole, if you think a 17, 18 year old girl's just broken top 100 in the world, you would almost think she can't have any worries in the world. You know, like there's, you know, but everyone has their own personal journeys. Everyone has their own personal battles. Wherever you are, you end up kind of normalizing you know, the way that your life is and, the, and those and those yeah. added pressures come. And I think it's it's so refreshing and important for people to hear these stories. Yeah, no, I think I think so, too. And, um, you know, it's uh, those days when I when I broke into the top 100, it was quite normal to do it fairly young because, uh, you know, there was already uh, Jennifer Capriati, Martina Hingis. They were 15, 16 when they were top 10. Yep. So um and, and I was always very aware of money for some reason. I mean, my, my, you know, I'm not coming from a wealthy family, but both of my parents were bankers. So I'm, I was always very aware of the cost of living, you know, how much it is to rent an apartment, how much it is to, um, you know, pay for, for your insurance and, and all these things. And when I added it up, I'm like, okay, and how much does it cost me? Uh, to go to this tournament, you know, to 25 tournaments a year to, to pay my coach and to probably pay a, a, um, a fitness coach. Um, and I was, uh, I was thinking, oh, my God, I have to make so much money you know, before tax, before even paying tax. So um, maybe I knew too much about it. Maybe it's better, you know, to not know about <laughs> that. But after all, I, I always knew and I still know exactly how much money I have on my account. <laughs> how much I, I'm making, how much I'm spending. Uh, it's probably, yeah, because, because of my mom and dad. <laughs> Maybe you should have gone and worked in the bank. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> no, you, the, the, the career that you've, you've had and, and, and also the life, the life that tennis gives us. You know, I actually, I saw, and I saw it a few times the fine, in the final when your husband caught, caught the ball that Ash oh. Barty hit into <laughs> hit in, hit into the well, not even the stands, and that alone, your front row seat 
to watch these amazing <laughs> events. You know what 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 incredible experiences they are that that money certainly can't, can't buy. And and if just moving into your your professional playing career, you know, very successful career from the outside. You know, world world number seven, and I believe won three WTA events. Um, do you view your playing career as successful? Um, yeah, I do. I'm very proud of what I have achieved. You know, my big goal since or when I was a little girl was always to become the best Austrian female tennis player internationally. So there was uh, Barbara Paulus, who was uh, 10 in the world. And then there was Judith uh, Wiesner. She was 12 in the world. I wanted to be better. So that uh, meant that I have to be top 10. Uh, my goal was never to be number one in the world, uh, which is funny because I see all these kids, you know, now over the uh, last 10, 15 years since I retired in Austria, they say, oh, I want to become number one in the world. And I never I never said that. Maybe that was a mistake. But uh, most of those kids or most of those kids, none of those kids have made it, you know. So um, I always wanted to be very realistic. And, um, and it was a dream when I was a little girl. But then, you know, when I noticed okay I'm pretty good at what I do um, I can actually achieve that and uh, looking back now of course uh, with my knowledge now I would do uh, quite a few things differently as well uh, especially my way of thinking but uh, it's always easier when 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 you've lived uh, that certain period in your life to know what you do better uh, or what you could have done better but um, overall you know um, I'm still proud of it that uh, no other Austrian female tennis player has achieved what I've achieved and um, and that's it I, I don't have any regrets um, and um, and yeah and maybe I could have played a little bit longer I retired when I was 28 but Did you? Um, you know I'm yeah I'm so happy yeah. with uh, how things have um, developed afterwards you know within my second career um, I pretty much managed it all all myself you know I thought about it what I wanted to do and what direction I wanted to do and I knew pretty much right away I wanted to stay in tennis and um, it's such a, a, a privilege to be able to be in this industry now for yeah over 30 or well, 30 years pretty much now and um, it doesn't feel like a job to me at all it's um, it's you know it's my passion and um, I really really love what I do and um, that's why it's it's just great you know it's my dream job it's a, I think it's an interesting topic around goal setting and how you know it's really interesting that you had in your head you wanted to be in the top 10 you and you you got there you know and that that drove you forward my very poor tennis career compared to yours Barbara but I I set my mind on I was going to be British I knew that I was better at doubles than singles and I was like okay I'll, I'll be British number one in doubles and I'll I'll play Wimbledon. That was that's where I almost. But I almost felt, in some ways, I set a bit of a ceiling. Now I reached British number one doubles player. I played Wimbledon, so then I was oh, I want to win a match at Wimbledon. So then the next year I won a match at Wimbledon, and not mad, not just because I said it, but I never really pushed. I don't think the ceiling higher or even took the ceiling away. And I guess my, my question to you, which is a bit, seems like a bit of a cheeky question when you got to world number seven, but, but do you think that you set, a, granted your ceiling was very high, but do you think you set a ceiling of 
being because you are the greatest ever female Australian tennis player on ranking, you know, so you Austrian, 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 <laughs> so Austrian. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm in dumb and dumber. Well, I don't know if you've seen the Jim Carrey when he, yes, when he, uh, <laughs> he gets the, the mix up. Yeah. So you've you, the, the greatest ever Austrian female tennis player by being ranked world number seven. Do you think that was a ceiling you set? And maybe if you hadn't set the ceiling, you could have yep. gone a little bit higher. Probably, probably. And, um, and that's, uh, that's definitely what I'm thinking because, uh, you know, when I was number seven in the world and when I broke into the top 10, I did have my next goal. Okay. I want to be number six. I want to be number five now, but it was not half-hearted, but I probably didn't believe yeah. in it. A hundred percent. I was quite happy with what I achieved because that was the dream I've had since I was a little girl, you know, and you finally get there and uh, and then I couldn't push myself any further. That's why I have so much respect of the likes of uh, Federer or Serena Williams, just to keep um, that motivation level up, that desire to win more, to do better. Um, it, it's unbelievable. For me, it was I was happy. I always say now, uh, you know, I'm happy that I wasn't uh, number one in the world because I couldn't live. Uh, I couldn't go down the street and, uh, you know, just get a coffee or I couldn't go do my grocery shopping. It would be a nightmare, probably. So um, I, I didn't I, I always say I didn't want to sacrifice <laughs> my private life. But yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I think you can see it in 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 a in a few players um, out there as well. Once they achieve this this one goal, winning a Grand Slam title maybe, or or um, getting to a certain ranking, then it's very hard for them to reset goals. But um, talking about goal setting, that's still in my life. It's unbelievable. That's something I have had when I was playing tennis and I still set myself goals in different ways. Even if it's okay, uh, this week I'm going to uh, run 5Ks in that time, you know, or um, I'm going to I'm gonna do yoga every single day. I'm not going to have coffee for two weeks. Things like that, they're always present in my life. I like to yeah. challenge myself a little bit um, as tennis players or as athletes least you have to be uh, disciplined and I, I still implement that in my life which is pretty funny I feel like I really need that and I think for anybody goal setting um, is, is really important because it makes you reflect on what you do where you're at what can you change you know yeah um, and uh, it's it's really really important yeah yeah to give it giving those small bits of purpose every single day and and also then bringing an awareness, isn't it? I think the skill, the skill of awareness is 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 a massive skill that that is, oh, yes. is is quite a challenging skill as well at times. Yeah, totally. Nobody is perfect. Again, uh, everybody has uh, has uh, issues, you know, and and uh, doubts and and this and that. And I think the older you get, the the better you get. The, um, at that that you reflect yourself uh, or you you reflect uh, you know yourself as a person and um, uh, when you're young you just don't think about it you think you own the world and you know everything anyway but uh, the older you get you know that you actually know nothing <laughs> about life and it's the same like when you grow up you know and you always think oh your parents they know absolutely everything and they they are perfect um, but then suddenly you know at the age of 20 you realize oh they're actually not they're just trying their best basically and and um they you know they also have faults like everybody else has but um i think in certain departments and certain parts in your life you can definitely 
um, work on yourself and you can change things when things don't go so well um, you know not not being afraid of of certain change you can you can uh, steer your your life in in the in the right direction and i mean of course there's uh, some some families or some people have horrible um horrible things that have happened to them but um i think um if you're not happy with your life change it you know do something different and i hate it when people don't change things you know they're afraid of that change and yeah. i don't really know how we got to this now <laughs> well well i'm gonna have to correct you on something barbara because you said that when when children are young, they think their parents know it all. Well, I have three children, and they they tell me quite regularly that I don't know anything. Actually, so they, you know, they already <laughs> already they've they've worked it out. So maybe maybe they're very smart that they that they've managed to work out that their dad doesn't know anything because. Yeah, they, they certainly don't have me on that pedestal. I don't think I've known everything. But no, but moving back into your into your playing, and and I think it's always fun. I mean, to have a top ten player on the world in the world, on on the on the podcast. There's so many amazing experiences that you have. So many players that so many people listening will know that you've played against. So if I put you on the spot, what's what's your greatest moment? Your greatest playing moment that you can remember or that sticks with you um there's been uh, quite a few playing moments uh, you know greatest moments when i played when i loved uh, playing fed cup for example when i represented my my country i remember the one moment where i played in my hometown in innsbruck and we played there was a tennis court built into the um you know we have this big ski jump there at the end of the ski jump where the the ski jumpers basically stopped then and there was a big tennis court and um towards the end of my career we played against america there billy jean king was there martina navratilova and we beat them as well that was uh, one of the highlights um highlights were always playing against steffi graf because we, she was my childhood hero um i uh never won more than five games against her because i was just so mm -hmm. shell-shocked and i just went on the court uh, hoping that i was going to survive pretty much and never thinking that i could beat her um and then you know uh, moments where i uh, i had match points against martina hingis and uh, monica selish even though i lost those matches and they were hurtful and painful i i thought it was they were great matches you know and i just loved the atmosphere and playing on on arthur ash stadium you know in a night match uh, that's unreal my quarterfinals at the at the us open as well and and i wish i i just could have done a little bit better at, at grand slam events um, but it was just such a tough time um when, when I played uh, in, in, in that era, because you had uh, pretty much the Williams sisters, you had Hingis, you had Davenport, you had Pierce, you had um, Morris Moore. Um, I Kleisters, think Kleisters, Henning came. Yeah, as well. exactly. So there were, uh, I mean, it was, um, it, was a, it, it was a tough time. There were so many heroes of our sport uh, playing in that. And it was just, sometimes I thought I, do I belong there really? <laughs> And I did, which is which is great for for a year or a bit more, um, and um, yeah, and, and these these are the moments which which come up in my mind, and lots of doubles. So I loved playing doubles with Patty Schneider. We were very successful together, and we were very good friends. 
and we are very good friends and Anke Huber for example as well I'll never forget yeah. those matches those doubles matches when I played with Anna Kornikova because the people the crowd was just going nuts you know we always had everybody cheering for us and um and when when especially when Anna was out there I mean it was just the atmosphere was just unreal um I have to say so yeah these are Olympics was pretty pretty special to me too um I uh, I nearly won a uh, a medal there. And unfortunately, I got into an argument argument with my then boyfriend in the quarterfinals of the Olympics, uh, which wasn't so good. So um, yeah, but it's just as a whole, you know, now that makes me proud. And now I'm thinking, oh, I could have, I should have probably won a a, a medal there. Um, yeah, there was so it's very hard for me to pick uh, one particular moment of my tennis career. First of all, I've forgotten most of those moments probably already because it's that long ago, and uh, there's just been too many as well. Well, it didn't really answer the question. I said one moment, you just give me 45, but that's but I think your <laughs> but I think your answer was better because you gave us you gave us a flavor. Of of sort of so many amazing experiences, and and I as you were talking there, I had so many questions jump in my head because I was like, I'd love to know about that. I'd love to know about that. But the one thing that probably the I have two questions, and I'm going to ask one first. How good was Steffi Graf's slice? Ah, oh, it was so freaking good. It was unbelievable. It's so it was so fast. It was so flat. I think because I. Because I watched Ash Barty a lot courtside, sitting yeah. in that whisper position, and we talked about that slice so much. And her slice is really good, but Steffi Graf's slice, I think, was faster. Much faster. It's the yeah. the bounce was uh, was much lower as well, and uh, I feel like that that slice was nastier than her forehand, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it was because that just uh, the amount of times. I mean, I, I've coached a lot of players over the years, and I always will go to Steffi Graf's slice. You know, yeah. no matter if I'm coaching a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, I don't care. Steffi Graf slice has to go down as one of the greatest ever shots of all time. So to, to experience playing against it must have been special. Now, my second my second question, and I I hope I'm not going to get you in trouble, but part of me hopes that I am. I am going to get you in trouble as well. Uh, you, what's coming did, now? you did not mention making a Grand Slam final with your Oops. now with your now husband <laughs> as one of your greatest ever moments on the tennis court true <laughs> i forgot that uh, that's what you do with husbands um yeah yeah we did make the the finals of uh, of the mixed at the australian open in 2001 i have to say we were not a couple then we were just really really good friends and it just happened i mean we used to play a bit of mixed doubles here and there and uh, we just had a great time. Josh was top 10 in, 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 in doubles. I had a pretty good ranking. I was probably top 10 or, or something like that. And uh, we just had a really good time. And I remember just before we played that finals, um, we started to practice. We were like, okay, let's, let's hit a few, you know, like moves. Let's practice a few moves uh, before we play this, this finals. And we played horrendous. It was the worst match we have played. Josh got broken a couple of times, not because uh, his surf was uh, was not great, also because I was just standing at the net like with two nails, you know, in my shoes. I couldn't move at all. So at one point we were just saying, okay, we looked at each other and said, let's just try to make this, uh, you know, over an hour pretty much, this, this final. So we don't get whipped underneath an hour 
or less than an hour. So we did have a, a lot of fun um, playing there in the in in the finals. And if somebody would have told us then, hey, you guys, don't worry, you're gonna spend the rest of your life together. You're gonna get married. We would have been like, what, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly, uh, yeah, we were there with our partners. Uh, Josh was in a relationship. I was in a relationship, and. Um, we just we just got along really well, and uh, when our careers came to an end, then suddenly the love sprung, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we I, just couldn't think uh, about life without each other anymore. It's lovely, and 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 in terms of that, I guess it's almost it takes. And my, my wife was was also a tennis player. She went to US College, and uh, we actually met. Not we didn't. We met at Wimbledon, but we also we got together playing a mixed doubles tournament. So, yeah. but but I do think it some ways for crazy tennis people and and what it takes to be involved in tennis in so many ways, it sometimes makes life a bit easier when you have someone who understands. Because if you're coming from the outside of tennis, it's almost quite hard to understand the way that the tennis world works. So I would imagine that's worked very well for you guys. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, once again, we were not a couple in our playing careers, uh, but uh, uh, since we both retired, so since 2004, 2005, we've been uh, we've been together. And uh, I mean, tennis, you know, we talk about tennis every day. At some, some point there is something about uh, tennis which comes up. And uh, uh, my husband is very passionate about it as well. He, uh, he used to he used to coach a lot. So now it's a little bit hard with the traveling being based in Australia. So he's not coaching as much uh, anymore on the tour. He can't uh, travel. But he's the one who coaches because I don't have the patience to coach anybody. I just do the TV part. And, uh, and we love it. And uh, he has, uh, you know, the understanding of the circuit. Uh, last year, for example, during COVID, we were apart from each other for four months. And, oh, um, wow. and uh, that was a very long time. And I don't think um, a, a non-tennis uh, husband uh, would have, or a, play, a former player would have, um, would have understood that somehow what I've done, you know, or for example, when I go to tournaments, uh, who do I work with? What do I do? And how is life on the tour? And we do have that understanding for for each other. And a few years ago, my husband was traveling with Sam Stosa, you know, all the time. Yeah. So um, I think it's a very different uh, way of living, a very li- different uh, uh, lifestyle you have, um, and a, a, a very different way of thinking overall, you know. So uh, we're certainly not the typical um, so typical couple. We we go through stages where we just don't see each other. Now, for example, when I go to Europe uh, in May, uh, um, we're not going to see each other for a month, and the month for us is a piece of cake. So yes. um, the support is 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 amazing. And to to be honest, I could not imagine uh, being with somebody who doesn't have that passion and that background. Uh, about tennis and you see it so many times on the tour. I mean, with uh, Elena Svitolina and Guy Monfils and there's, oh. there's so many other couples, Roger Federer and, yeah. and, uh, and Mirka, um, you understand each other and, um, and uh, life on the tour is, 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 is pretty hard because you're traveling pretty much 10, 11 uh, months a year. So it's not that easy to, to find somebody who understands that you're away from home for that long. So you, you touched on it a little bit there. What Do you have any day-to-day involvement in, in tennis right now or is it just 
just the not not just but is it or is it the events that you you're doing with the with the tv and the media yeah so this is that my downtime so whenever i finish the australian open these uh, three and a half i have about three and a half months before i get ready to pack my bags and go back to europe again i don't um i don't work at all so mm-hmm. this is the time where i just uh, recharge my batteries i'm a mother I make lunch boxes. I cook. I mm-hmm. exercise, and um, I follow the I follow the tennis news. I follow the results, of course, and um, and I talk with my husband about it. You know, did you see this result? Did you see that result? Uh, Felix Auger-Aliassim winning his first title, and we do. It. I mean, tennis comes up in our conversation all the time. And then once I'm um, once I'm leaving in May, I'm pretty much working all the way until. Okay. November. Um, there's uh, the Grand Slam tournaments. There's lots of other events. Um, there's I'm, I'm doing some stuff on the court with uh, with the Austrian Federation as well. So in in lots of different ways, um, I'm connected with tennis, um, which is a lot of fun because every time I work, it's very different. You know, it's never the same. And uh, I work in in English language for Eurosport, and then. I work for an Austrian network uh, as well at some other uh, tournaments in, in German. Um, so it's, and I work with different people. So every event I go to, every time I work, it's with different um, and people, but then people I've uh, known now for many years and they've become friends uh, with me as well. Uh, and uh, it's, it's just a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's very intense, but it's a lot of fun, I have to say. And are you still are you still playing at all? Because I know you used to play the Invitationals. Are you still playing the Invitational events at the Grand Slams? Yeah, I just played at the Australian Open. We played. Uh, we it was a very small group this year. Um, it was just four. Uh, no, it was six, six, four girls and uh, four guys. And we played two doubles matches where we just swapped and rotated around and one mixed doubles match. And um, it was a bit of a surprise to me because I didn't know, I didn't think there was going to be a, a Legends event this year. But uh, uh, I had one racket with me, so mm-hmm. I had to steal another racket uh, from someone else. And uh, Sam Stosa gave me strings and grips. And um, I'm lucky enough to still get get the, my my tennis gear from Adidas. So I said, oh, emergency, emergency. I need a tennis skirt. I need a top. And uh, I played. And, um, yeah, I'm hoping to be able to play it in the Invitational Doubles in Wimbledon again. It's so much fun. And you feel very special. And you, it's, it's kind of when you turn back time, you know, and you go to the locker room and you get ready for your match. And then you yep. stand out there and nothing works the way it used to work. <laughs> you can't move as much anymore as fast. Nobody anymore, can tell when they're watching. Uh, I they've, think they can. But they've drank too much PIMS. <laughs> maybe yeah sometimes they maybe i can tell them actually if i play again that they should just hand out a few more free pims before but it's it's um it's so it's so much fun and all the girls who are playing they love it as well and we just get together we talk about old times and um and try to entertain the crowd and um I try to play tennis. Uh, it sounds stupid, but once a week <laughs> now, just to you know, to keep the flow going and and, and everything. But uh, again, I just do lots of other sports. You know, I've played so yeah. much tennis in my life that uh, I, I want to do other things as well. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, but the, those are highlights. Yeah, exhibitions and and invitational doubles. That's for sure. And I have to mention Barbara, two thousand and fourteen Wimbledon Invitational. 
champion with Jan yeah. and, and Avotna, um, you know, who three years later we tragically lost, you know, and, yeah. you know, way, way too soon. How, how was that? How's that memory for you? Very special, oh, I would imagine. Yeah, it was very special because Jana, uh, she was a player, she was an established player and uh, a Wimbledon champion, I believe, when I was just coming up, you know, in the rankings. And she would always uh, support me. She would always chat to me I had some tough matches against her uh, which I was where I was leading and then I lost but she always would take the time and and then when we teamed up in in Wimbledon for the invitation of doubles um, I think we played a, a year before or maybe a couple of years before already as well she was just um, she was just unbelievable she was almost like a mum, you know the way um, she was um, she was talking to me and about life and about uh her experience and everything. And she had a great sense of humor too. It was just um, so much fun playing with her and, and getting to know this other side of her. And uh, yeah, she never, she never mentioned her, her health problems. She didn't want anyone um, to know what she was going through. And um, it was, it was heartbreaking um, for me to find out. Um, yeah a few years ago that, that that she has passed and um i will never forget that wimbledon when we won together for her she won it in doubles she won it in singles but for me it was my first title and we celebrated and uh, we we it, it it meant a lot to to both of us and um and, and this is a memory i will never forget uh, as well and i should have mentioned that before when you asked me my biggest memories you know when i was playing because that's certainly certainly one of them and uh yeah, she's um, she she was uh, a great role model and uh, a beautiful beautiful woman. I love lovely words and, and a lovely memory to have Barbara as well. Yeah, and I'd I'd like to I know we we've, we've talked about your media career kind of integrated within within the chat, but one one thing that does really interest me is going from all being a tennis player to almost seem what it seemed like would just seamlessly transition into into working in the media and and doing such an amazing job for the last 16 17 years did you have training was that something going on behind the scenes how tell us about how that happened and and yeah how how you establish yourself so quickly um, well, I'm in this business now for, believe it or not, 17 years. Um, so it's quite a long time, uh, certainly a lot longer than my tennis career. But uh, I, while I was playing towards the end of my career, I was already thinking about, okay, what, what do I want to do? And um, that one thing was, uh, was uh, working for TV because I like to speak. I like to talk. I, I think I make people comfortable and I can be quite funny. And I thought that could be a really, really good path for me. So I've done a bit of um, co-commentary work for, for Eurosport uh, in, in Germany there. And, um, uh, and I have expressed them that uh, this is something, you know, I'd like to do down the track, um, you know, like in, in media, in TV. And that's, uh, that's how it all started in 2005 at the French Open. I, I retired at the Australian Open and the French Open, I was already working for Eurosport and I, I was there as an expert, kind of, uh, alongside Mats uh, Vilanda already. And uh, I've done my first uh, interviews here and there. And I would love to see some of those interviews because they would have been horrible. Um, but, um, you know, um, I kept on, you know, doing interviews and, and other stuff. And uh, every year 
the the head of tennis there especially at Eurosport you know just um, asked me to do more things and different things so he kind of trained me um, a little bit without me knowing you know that uh, I was trained um, and yeah. I think it co comes with experience and what I do uh, what I do and what I have done in the past I haven't, haven't had any media training but um, I think the important thing is to to watch other people to also do uh, watch yourself on videos um, and uh, what was always important to me is to get feedback you know um, from from my team I always told them just be honest even you know even if it hurts but I can only get better if you give me feedback and um, sometimes that was a little bit harsh and um, and I think that's that's the way I have, um, yeah, evolved and, and developed myself as as um, as an expert, as a host, as a. I'm certainly not uh, perfect as well, but um, I think in that business, you know, it's um, um, it's it's just important that you know what you're talking about. And I feel that with the players, that they uh, all know, even though they might have not been around on the tour, but they, it, it gets passed down somehow. And they're, they're very open to a former, former player. And, and um, yeah, and I, 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 you know, it never ends. You still, there's so many things you can do better. And um, I still, I always work on myself where I look at tapes and I'm thinking, okay, I should have done this or, um, you know, do that because it's the same as on the tennis court. Sometimes you play a match and you think your forehand was outstanding, but it was actually not. And uh, it's the same thing when you when you host a show and you go like, oh, that was really good or that was really bad, and then it it just comes across completely different. So um, it never it never ends the the progressing. I'm also I have to say I I want to evolve. I want to progress. I want to get better. I think you can never stop. Um, and uh, certainly those companies or Eurosport, they keep me on my toes because um, I always have different roles, you know, it's never the yeah. same. And I think that's important as well, that um, otherwise you tend to get lazy, I think, if you always do the same thing. So that's what's fun. Um, and that's yeah. what's good, I think, that you, that you always get pushed in a certain way. Yeah, because your roles seem to be different this year than, yes. than normally you're in the studio. And yeah. the, the one that I have, have to ask you about that I always find that I think it was maybe last year when it came out was this kind of player that appears in the studio when you're watching on the TV. Um, the teleportation. Yeah. And, and, and at first I remember seeing that going, whoa, whoa, what's going on? How come, how come Rafa stood right next to... Barbara, Matt, you know, what's, how, how's, how's that? Or I guess, is that just, you're almost having a video call and, and not necessarily experiencing maybe the strangeness that we do as the viewers at first. Well, it should uh, appear as we were all actually standing together in the studio. And sometimes it probably doesn't, yeah, with the teleportation. But uh, it's an unbelievable technology. Um, and we, we started it uh, two years ago when we um, had the first Grand Slam back. I believe that was the US Open in 2020. 20, 20 right yeah. yeah 2020 exactly because the french open was afterwards and uh, the whole world looked at us and like geez what is eurosport doing <laughs> so it's really funny but um i mean we Mats and i obviously we don't see the person uh, yes. standing next to us we see the person 
um, we pretend to see that person. Also, the person who we interview doesn't see us. He basically looks into a camera wherever he is or she is. And uh, there's a photo of Mats and, and myself underneath. So they know who's there. Um, but um, yeah, that's, uh, it's a great technology, especially um, during COVID when we could not travel um, anywhere. And um, it's, uh, we use it now at the Olympics as well, Eurosport. And um, it, it's, it's been pretty amazing. But you have to get used to that as well, not uh, being able to touch somebody or um, sometimes there's a little bit of a delay as well that yep. you can't interrupt anyone. Um, but that's what I meant with challenges. There's always something new. We used to have a studio on site and there's, um, you know, this whole technology thing in the cube in, in, in London where, where we spent a lot of time as well. And then now at the Australian Open, I did a lot of other things again. So I think um, that's important that you're versatile and um, I feel like um, at this stage of, of my second career, I can pretty much cover everything. I can host, I can commentate, I can be the expert, I can, uh, you know, do play by play. Um, so I think that's it, that that was always important to me that I can can cover cover a lot because there's a lot of people who can only do one thing, and I always wanted to be able to, um, yeah, pretty much do it all if I have to. <laughs> My my last question before I go into we have a very quick fire round. Well, it's as quick as you want it to be at the end. Yeah. Um, there shouldn't be anything too tricky in there, Barbara. But okay. you now, as as someone who is very high profile in the media, as uh, someone who was very high profile as as a player, and also has a husband who has been a player coach, very high profile. You, you've you're well situated to understand how the tennis industry is as a whole, you know. And obviously, we we hear varying things uh, about that, you know. During COVID, obviously, a lot of people gave opinion. There was there was fractures within the sport. If we're not careful, the sport's on the on on the down. You then watch a Grand Slam and you see it packed to the absolute rafters for pretty much every match. And you say, well, actually what you're talking about, the sport's in an amazing place. Um, so from your lenses, how do you see the tennis industry as a whole right now? I still think that tennis is uh, one of the, the, the biggest sports uh, in the world. And, um, and I love that about our sport, you know, that uh, in every country people play tennis um, and you can see it as, as you mentioned at the Grand Slams, you know, uh, you just have to look at all the, the TV ratings uh, and all the people who were on site, what kind of uh, an atmosphere it was. So I don't think there's too many sporting events where you can see this in the course of two weeks as well. You know, you have big sporting event events which go for one, two days. There's one game here in, in soccer, in football or something like that. But in tennis, it's, uh, it's the whole year pretty much. And uh, I think it's a beautiful sport. And um, I'm sure there has to be, you know... Uh, always have to be changes over the years it can never be the same like it was 100 years ago and now i think you have to modernize certain things which we have seen now with uh, you know with uh, with hawkeye for example or with uh, um, you know different uh, different rules and and regulations at at, um, at uh, matches or at, at tennis tournaments 
um, what what one thing is certainly harder is um, I think to to have that breakthrough in in the top hundred because. Um, I think now, especially through uh, COVID, uh, I know it on the women's tour, a lot of um, the tournaments couldn't survive and um, there's not a lot of opportunities sometimes for lower ranked players to be able to compete. Um, and uh, that's something which is a little bit of a worry. We see the Grand Slams and they're very successful and, um, you know, the, the Master Series and the, and the big events. Uh, but then those uh, smaller tournaments, they're, they're the ones which I'm worried about and uh, the, the, the players who are trying to make their way up because as we know, uh, and that was my biggest worry, tennis is a very costly sport and um, if you have to travel all around the world, there's a lot of kids and a lot of players who have to stop playing tennis because they just can't finance it. Um, and that's very, very sad to hear and uh, I don't have the solution, that's not my, uh, my department, but um, I'm sure that uh, you know they're they're working on it on on certain strategies and uh, what I would like to see a little bit more as well, which is happening, I think, is uh, just that there's more WTA and ATP events uh, together. Um, and uh, I know next year, for example, or this year, that's the one in Hamburg uh, will be a combined event. I think uh, the men and women both can benefit a lot from it you know when you go to as a family to to a tennis tournament how good is it you know when you Absolutely. have uh, men's players you have women's players there at the same time and um, I think you just have to yeah put all the forces together in tennis and um, and uh, yeah have a few more uh, combined events have a tour together uh, maybe even and um, yeah and, and and we'll see how that goes but I'm not worried about the the tennis sport uh, okay I mean, there's always countries you know where sometimes it drops maybe a little bit the popularity and then it goes up in another country but tennis is such a, a timeless sport which uh, a lot of people or people can relate to um, they play it themselves, so um, it'll it'll always be around. It'll always be one of the popular sports. I think. Do you think the players? And it was Xavier Melis that said this to me actually. When I and I'm quite good friends with Xavier, and we were we were talking. He was saying when he played, he just had so little regard really for for the media for sponsors for you know didn't really understand the concept of of supply and demand and and having to have the tv rights and having to have ticket sales and having to have these things ultimately to bring in bring in the money in, into the sport whereas now that he plays a lot of the the legends events you know and Xavier, I'm sure he's the first person to get to the bar when he gets invited now. But he, <laughs> but, but he, but he said that you know he now really understands how important it is to be accessible as as mm -hmm. a player because those events wouldn't happen without that. Do you, do you think yep. that now that you're in the media, does it frustrate you that you? that players aren't accessible enough that you can't, is there a way that we can do it, that we actually get like this, you know, this, I know, I know this is an, an hour long, but getting to know the players, you know, and I've had Kazakh Kina, Igor Shiontek, I've had, you know, Borna Chorich, quite a few people come on the podcast and I, and, and I, and I know the listeners feel so much more connected to them because they, yeah. they hear the insights and they, they get to know them a little bit more. Is that a frustration you have that working in the media that the players yeah. aren't accessible enough? 
sometimes and uh, you know some players are accessible and some players are not uh, as accessible i think uh, it's uh, it's a matter of uh, uh, the education uh, for the players you know when they are young that this is part of the deal you know that uh, you can only make that much money you can only be that successful if the media is uh, is uh, around pretty much and uh, you know if the media is around there will be tv stations there's sponsors there so it's a big cycle and i think everybody has to always helping everyone in that uh, department and it's really uh, frustrating Frustrating. It has been really frustrating for me uh, sometimes when players would uh, just say, no, I'm not going to do this. You know, this takes five minutes or this takes 10 minutes. Or sometimes uh, the request doesn't even get to the player because the agent thinks, you know, no, it's, uh, this is not necessary to do. But um, I think that's where in other sports, maybe sometimes uh, they do a bit of a better job uh, with golfers or in Formula One or uh, in skiing. I mean, it's very hard to compare that because it's not a world sport, but uh, you know the, the the athletes need to know that everybody you know you the athletes needs the media and uh, the media needs the athletes so it's a give and take and I think um, uh, I would I would really appreciate it and I would really uh, if I would coach a, a, a kid uh, then I would spend a lot of time just explaining um, that that kid, you know, uh, that 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 it's not just the tennis game on the court. It's not just you. It's every everything else, you know. And um, you you you're building. You can build a legacy for the sport. I mean, look at you know a lot of the kids don't even know who Billie Jean King is, and you're thinking, oh my God, we owe everything to her. You know, she yeah. has uh, uh, passed the way for us. And um, and I think a lot more should be done there. And that's uh, not necessarily the WTA. It's the coaches as well. The coaches have to educate uh, the kids, especially when, when they're young. And they uh, and the problem is then some of the coaches have no idea because they haven't been there and they haven't done it. No. But uh, uh, that's a, a really important um, matter. And um, a lot of players, Xavier is not the only one, I think, who realizes afterwards, Jesus, why didn't I go to the tournament director and say, thank you, you know, or you're doing a great job. Oh. And uh, I do work at the tournament as a tournament ambassador in, in, in Linz uh, for many years with the tournament director, called Sandra Reichland. I know there's a few players who are coming in. They're thanking her for a wild card. And um, it makes the day, it means the world to her, um, you know, when, when the players are coming in because there's not many who do that anymore. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's up to the team who, uh, to, to educate uh, the players there a little bit more, I think. And let's see this Netflix documentary, I think is going to be, yeah. it's, it's good. That's going to be exciting. And I think that could, that could maybe open the, the door to a, a little bit of a different, a different crowd. It's going to get the sport out there. It certainly worked well for formula one. You know, I think the Netflix shows had a big impact on formula one. So that's yep. exciting. So I think watch this space on the Netflix show. And um, yeah, I think more more things, more accessibility has to be good for, for the sport. Barbara, before I go into the quick fire round, I want to say a massive, massive thank you to you. Um, You're you know, very welcome. Uh, so the listeners know, I, I sent Barbara an email approximately 36 hours ago. And, you know, <laughs> your, the difficulty I have on getting some guests on, you know, and, you know, for you to have just come on so 
quickly, so willingly, so enthusiastically and, and bringing your amazing insights and, and wealth of knowledge. I thank you massively from myself, but also on the behalf of all the listeners. So a big, big thank you. Thank you. That was uh, so much fun. And I, I can see it's an hour 15. It certainly didn't feel like that. And uh, I do have a 24 hour rule. So if somebody sends me an email or a text message, I get back to that person within 24 hours. That's one of my goals, one of my rules. And uh, that's why that all happened so quickly. Well, you were you were a star, but are you ready? <laughs> this is the this is the real moment. This is what we. Oh, my God. I try for. to be. <laughs> so quick fire round. <laughs> What does control the controllables mean to you? <laughs> control the controllables. Well, you can't control the weather. You can't control the way somebody's thinking. So um, I'm, I think I, I know what I, I can control. I can control myself, but uh, I can't control anybody else or anything else pretty much. Maybe so my TV I can control. Yeah. <laughs> If you've got a battery in the remote. <laughs> That's right. So ownership and responsibility is what I'm taking from that, you know, taking ownership of yourself. Your your favourite Grand Slam? Australian Open. Forehand. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> well, everybody says it. 95% of people on this show say Australian Open. So they're doing something. Well done, Craig Tiley, who's also been on the show. Yep. But well, well done to Craig. Uh, forehand or backhand? Backhand. Serve or return? Return. Indoors or outdoors? Outdoors. Clay courts or hard courts? Clay. Three sets or five sets in male Grand Slams? Five sets. Three sets or five sets in female Grand Slams? Three sets. <laughs> you, don't, you don't like the idea <laughs> of playing five? <laughs> no. <laughs> This is an interesting one. You've got to listen carefully. What do people often get wrong about you? Austria, Australia. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> medical, medical timeout or not? Uh, yes. Medical timeout. If it's a real injury, yes. But, you know, that's How the do problem. You know? <laughs> that's the problem. Uh, Serena or Venus? Serena. Roger or Rafa? Ooh. Do I have to answer that? You have to. It's in the contract. <laughs> um, Roger. Mats or Tim? Mats. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they say this is 60% of our listeners are in the UK. They're not going to be happy with that answer. Uh -oh. <laughs> what's, what's one rule change that you would have in tennis? Um, I think the surf, the service let just continue. Like college, US college. That's exactly yeah, what they do. Yeah, in US just college. continue. Adds more excitement. And before you answer this question, I need to let you know you are responsible for getting this next person that you mentioned. So be careful who you say. Who should <laughs> our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Ooh, I think you should speak to... I have to be responsible for it. This is uh, this is in the, it was in the small print of the email. This, you've got to pass you've got to pass the baton on to, to the next person to come on to the show. Oh 
Um, I think Roger Federer should come on the show, don't you think? Well, I certainly <laughs> think he should. But Wayne Ferreira also told me that Roger Federer should come on the show. But Wayne, has, Wayne has not got Roger on the show for me yet. And, <laughs> and, and I'm... Str- uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to struggle there a little bit. I think um, uh, this is not such an easy question to, to answer. I would think, you know, especially because you're in the UK, you know, Mark Petchy, Sam Smith. So Sam um, hasn't been on, Mark has. Okay, Sam Smith. Emma Raducanu would be amazing, but uh, I can't organise you, Emma Raducanu, I'm sorry. <laughs> there'll, be, uh, there'll be three or four rows of agents, I think, to get through for Emma. So I, I, I think we need to settle on Sam Smith. So I'll, uh, I, do, I do know Sam, but I don't have her contact. So I might, I might drop, you a, drop you an email. And as you get okay. back in 24 hours, it shouldn't, <laughs> it's not going to take long. Barbara, That's right. you have been an absolute star. Thank you so much. And yeah, all, all the best. Have a good evening in Australia. It's evening for you. So enjoy the next couple of months before you're back to, to the hard work on, on the tour. Will do. Cheers. Thank you so much. Well, once again, what a fantastic treat to have such a, an amazing guest as Barbara. And I'm sure you love that one as well, Vicky. Yeah, I knew I was going to enjoy that one before I even listened to it. From tennis player to broadcaster, similar story to me, but obviously she's been far, far, far more successful in both of those. <laughs> Depends how you define success, doesn't it? Do you oh, know? Here we go. Do you know what I mean? Well, a success factor for me would definitely have been even to have been on the same tennis court as Steffi Graf. I absolutely loved hearing all of those stories, but I also really enjoyed hearing about how she prepares um, for work, presenting on Eurosport, and how similar that is. Um, all the habits that she has is so similar to what she was doing when she would have been playing tennis. She talked about you know preparing physically and mentally. Um, for covering the Grand Slams like she would have done when she was playing, eating well, keeping up her fitness and setting herself goals in her everyday life. Now, all these kind of habits that she's carried forward into her day-to-day life now. I thought you might like the stories, you know, when they they were coming out. And I, I must admit, I'm with you. I got very excited when she was talking about Steffi Graf's slice backhand. Oh, the slice. You know, and it's just that. And then obviously the great Jan and Avotna, you know. And then and then when you think as well, what a, what a career she's had. And we do talk about success. And, you know, it is measured in so many different ways. But there she was as we were watching the, the Ash Barty final of the Australian Open and the ball went into the crowd and her husband grabbed the ball and 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 it was I I must have been I thought at the time oh my goodness here we are in our house imagine being in that stadium but not just in that stadium being so close to that action and and it almost feels like she's got the dream job I think so many of us would be envious of Barbara and and all of the fantastic journalists and and commentators that are that are in that world. But at the same time, the dedication that it takes and and you talk there, Vicky, about how she eats, how she looks after herself, spending three months away from her kids. You know, there's a yeah. there's, there's a whole world of dedication that goes into it, and that fits into what I, I've believed now for a long time. And we've talked about it on the podcast, this this performer and, and almost no matter what you do, 
you are looking to perform to the, your highest level. And in order to do that, a big part of performing well is preparing, you know, making sure you have a plan, making sure that you have determination, a purpose, you know, all, all of these things that Barbara spoke about that sounded just like a tennis player. And, and anyone thinking the investment that you are putting into your tennis isn't worth it because you're not lifting the Wimbledon trophy at the end of it, you can forget that because all of those skills that you're picking up are just so incredible and they're going to put your, put yourself in a place where you will be, be able to go on and learn the knowledge bit of whatever field and industry that you then go into as well. And I think Barbara is a, is a, is a living proof of that. And it was, it was so fantastic to, to talk to her and, and get those details. I would imagine that the edit was fairly easy. She spoke so smoothly for, throughout the conversation and is obviously a real natural at what she's doing. Oh, such a pro, such a pro. I hardly had to, to touch that. It was, she speaks so well. Um, talking about learning, she was saying, you know, she's still learning now. And from a journalist's point of view, I was listening with two heads really from the tennis side and, and, and from a journalist side and, you know, how easy her transition was from being a tennis player into, you know, cameras being on the other side and had a lot of respect for her when she said she, you know, she didn't mind making mistakes. It's okay. She understood that, you know, she makes them sometimes. I mean, I still have nightmares about reading the news on, on the radio, you know, radio where no one can even see you, you know, making mistake on air and I'll wake up and be like, oh no, I've just, you know, these are things I really worried about at the time. And I, I still think about it and obviously still have dreams about it now, but she had a very, very good attitude towards that. You know, it's okay to make mistakes. I'm doing the best that I can. Um, and she's still learning. You know, she said she's always looking for ways to improve. And after being in the business for 17 years, I think that was an awesome message. Yeah, and it's, a, it's another great example of, of how the two things are connected. You know, you've got your you've got your tennis and you've got your outside life of tennis. And, and they do connect back and forth. You know, the things that you are learning in your life are able to then help you on the tennis court and then the skills that you're learning on the tennis court and in your tennis training are able to then transfer transfer over because ultimately tennis is a sport of of being able to tolerate and there's no sport like it where you know you win a match but you lose 48% of the points almost half the points you know you make unforced errors you lose we've talked about the realities of sport a lot on this podcast and i think when you learn that skill of tolerating it's something that you're able to take into other forms of your life. So I'm not surprised, you know, someone world number seven. Yeah, she's done very well, but she's also had to tolerate a lot of losses along that way. So maybe the odd mistake that she's made on air, I would imagine she's got some pretty strong resilience to overcome that. And and that was a skill she worked on. She talked, didn't she? She talked about working with a sports psychologist, you know, in her younger days as a player, you know, as with all players, you know, having having challenges, having internal challenges, having mental challenges, and she was able to to work through some of those things and find strategies that work for her. And and I think for anybody listening, you know, I think there'll be a lot of young tennis players, a lot of parents of young tennis players. It's like any skill, you know, you can't be amazing 
at it when you start, but you keep working on it on a day-to-day basis, day in, day out, and you'd be amazed at how good your mental skills can be, just as your technical skills or your tactical skills and physical skills as well. And it was so lovely hearing hearing that story. And for me, I just kept finding myself connecting and going in between the two. Tennis player, journalist, tennis player, journalist, and how and how closely linked they they both are. Oh, they really are. And from the performers' side that you need, you get those nerves beforehand like you would before a match you get that adrenaline high afterwards if you do well you get the disappointment if you feel you haven't done something very well or you've made a mistake or you've not asked that person something the feelings are very very similar and so I think if you are a good talker you are a good communicator it is such a good fit for tennis players, for sports people, because you are transferring so many skills. The listeners benefit because they've got um, someone who's so knowledgeable of the sport and the individual benefits because they're still in a sport that they love and still getting the highs and lows that they perhaps might have missed if they moved into something completely different. And the final thing for me that kind of got me thinking was when she was talking about the build-up to the Australian Open with it being so focused on Novak Djokovic and how she didn't like it because it, it divided the tennis community so much and how, you know, tennis brings people together and kind of fast forward a few weeks. Obviously, we had Sergei Sokovsky on the show last week. But um, kind of we've seen through talking to so many people in the tennis community, so many tennis clubs, tennis academies around Europe, as horrendous as it is watching everything that's going on in Ukraine at the moment, it it has been so lovely seeing the tennis community kind of come together. How can we help? What can we do? Um, and for any of you listening that that feel helpless, as, as I think we, we all do, you know, I think there's so many of us want to be able to do something about the tragic events that are happening right now in Ukraine. Now, a couple of things I, I've seen quite a few friends of mine have been have been ordering um, or, or they've been reserving Airbnbs of people in Ukraine. And I think that's such a great idea as a way of getting instant instant cash injection into people that need it you know they'll, they'll never need it more more than now and that's something that I certainly want to share here, here on on this podcast but it, as for the tennis community please reach out to us you know we we've tried to be proactive this end we we are in touch with a number of coaches a number of charities that we're that we're trying to help out whether that's bringing players over to the academy whether that's trying to advertise that fact through through our podcast and getting people in the tennis community talking about it, you know, as a way of us providing tennis training, places to live. You know, you can't you can't imagine what some of these families and people are going through. So that's my big plea to anybody that's listening. Reach out to us. We'll also put some links in in the show notes. And we can only do what we can do at the, in, in this time. Keep those messages going out there. As Sergey said last week, 
to receive messages from the tennis community. Yes, it can't physically change what's happening, but from the mental side, from the feeling of being together and having people on your side, it goes a long way. It goes a long way to morale that that Sergi and, and the rest of the, the, the people in Ukraine are currently experiencing. We will keep trying to do what we can as an academy, as a podcast, and open to any suggestions from you. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan, and we are Control the Controllables.